Love is essential is the name of the sermon title. I just wanted to be very direct. I didn't want to be unclear. Love is essential. And this is the theme in the, in the, the, of the message this week. It, it's also the title. And the heart of Christ is love. The heart of Christ is love. First, first John 4, 7, as Brother James read, thank you, brother. God is love. Also, what is the greatest commandment? What did the Lord command us to do? Love God and love others, right? John 13, 35 says this. All men will know that you're my disciples by how you, what? Love one another. Therefore, love is the most distinguishing mark of a Christian. Every genuine believer has been given the ability by the Spirit to love. Love God and love one another, particularly the brotherhood and sisterhood, other brothers and sisters. And it's important for us to understand what love is before we get into the, the Scriptures here. Because the type of love that's described in the Scriptures is different from how, how the world knows. I mean, our, even our English language is limited. We use love in such an ambiguous way. I love my wife. I love ice cream. I love football. I love uh, the weather. I love uh, hockey. I mean, those are all things that we use. The same word, but we kind of mean it in different degrees, in different ways, don't we? And so the Greek language is more descriptive. And I thought this was helpful just to go over the different types of love that's detailed in the original language. Let me just go through four of them, okay? Just fairly briefly. But eros, this is talking about romantic or sexual love. All right, perhaps a type of love that you would have for your spouse. Phileo is brotherly or sisterly love. This is a love that you have, a common affection, a deep affection for you have for another friend, a close comrade. All right, I like this person. They like me. There's a love there. Storge love is familial love as a parent will have for a child, a child will have for their mother or father. Storge love. But this is a type of love that's detailed out in 1 Corinthians 13. We're talking about, you know this word, agape love. Agape love. And I'm going to take a little time here to kind of detail out what agape love is. All right? As I studied this word deeply, I mean, you can't get around it. 1 Corinthians 13 is about agape love. You have to have an understanding of what this word means. Otherwise, you miss the whole point. All right? Because you apply it a different type of love if we don't get this concept down. Agape love was fairly foreign to the Greco-Roman world. How do we know this? Agape is the rarest word in, the, in ancient Greek literature, meaning they didn't use that word. As scholars went back in time 2,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago, agape love wasn't used in literature. It was very hard to find. And this is a distinctly Christian concept. Because this is one of the most common words in the New Testament. From our Lord Jesus Christ to Paul to Peter, love. To, to, to the disciple of love, John himself, love. One of the most common words in the New Testament, agape. And this transcends all human understanding of love. Right? This is very others focus. This is an outward focus. This is not inward focus. Where the world teaches us to take care of me, myself, and I. This type of love, agape love, says, think about others. Think about how we could build up other people. This is Christ-like love. This is where Christ himself defines what love is. Remember John 13, 34 goes, I give you a new command to love one another. Well, they heard that before to love, but the Lord was redefining it, taking it to a whole nother level, what agape love is. 
This is the highest form of love, agape love is. This is the sacrificial love of the will, where you surrender, you sacrifice yourself for the good of others. This is the type of love that Christians are marked by. This is that type of love. Agape love. So 1 Corinthians 13, if you can remember only one thing, it's about agape love, Christ-like love, the sacrificial love of the will. I choose to surrender sacrifice for you, for your betterment. And the Corinthian church, let me give a little bit more context. Why does Paul spend a whole chapter? Why does he put so much energy into chapter 13? Is because of this. The Corinthian church, they're very eloquent. They have talented people in their church family. They're very gifted in the natural, but also in the spiritual sense as well. They're very educated. Many of them are very educated as Corinth was the learning, one of the learning centers of the world. They're very productive. They knew how to be very efficient. But they lacked what? They lacked what? They lacked agape love for one another. They missed it. They missed it. They missed the essence of what this is all about. Very busy, very productive, but they're missing it. Love for one another. So we're going to answer one question. Like I said, I'm going to focus on the first three verses. And then we're going to have a... Uh, time of response at the end with an illustration, but the question is, why is serving with love essential? Right? The name of the sermon title is Love is Essential, but why is serving with love essential? These are the three points. Because serving without love is powerless. Serving without love is powerless. Serving without love is pointless. Powerless, pointless. And thirdly, serving without love is profitless profitless. Okay, so let's get right into the points here. Why is serving without love essential? Point number one, serving without agape love is powerless. Let me read verse one. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, agape love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. Paul's attacking some Corinthian status symbols. They prided themselves on being effective and efficient, getting stuff done. And particularly, the Corinthians loved oratory, fancy speakers, gifted presenters. They were moved by this. They believed that if you have a gifted speaker, you could move people, you could change people, you could get things done. And combined with their ecstatic uh, mystery religions that they came out of, they really emphasized the spiritual gift of tongues, all right? And that, that thought they had, there was a power in it, a unique power in the gift of tongues. And so Paul is making a point here. And when he says, if I have the tongues of men and of angels, I believe he's using a hyperbole to make a point. A hyperbolic point, meaning from the lesser to the higher. Meaning even if I could speak as an eloquent man, or even with the tongues of angels... Paul's making a huge point from the lesser to the greater. You know, I can speak with angelic eloquence. Paul is basically saying, even if you could speak like that, with that type of eloquence, the type of thing that will get you applause in the marketplace, even if you're skillful in speech, but do not have love, agape love, you're nothing. That's what he's saying. And without agape love, the motivation, rather than loving and building up one another, was to 
was to kind of impress one another, right? To just say, wow, you could be professional. <laughs> you could earn a living doing this. That was kind of the idea there. That, that Paul's recognizing, hold on now, this is kind of a show. This is kind of a performance. This is kind of a platform for you to put on a show so that you have a little following here. You're just basically operating in the flesh. Right? So rather than in, looking to use your gifts of speaking to encourage one another, you're just looking to build up your own self. And it says, I, and then if, if that's how you speak, he, Paul says, I have become what? A noisy gong. <laughs> gong, 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 right? Or a clanging cymbal. And what do gongs do? I mean, right, what do gongs do? They grab attention. So basically, you're just up there trying to grab attention. You're an attention grabber. And they may appear, appear oppressive for a moment, like, wow, that man, that woman grabs my attention. But at the end of the day, it's all about self-exaltation. It gets nothing done. It's powerless. Powerless. And Paul uses an interesting uh, choice of words with noisy gong and clanging cymbals because this is a very familiar thing for the Corinthians because their pagan religions, the, the, the commentators would say, had gongs and cymbals and a lot of noise, a lot of clanging in the streets. They, they, this is the life that they came out of. You're, basically, you're acting like your old selves. And you also, brothers and sisters, remember that old life had no power. It was just all flesh. It was just all noise. No power. Powerless pagan worship. So even if you could speak with the eloquence of angels without love, you just back to your old ways. Powerless. I remember Michael Barrow, one of my good friends who I coached with. He was a great player and a coach as well, but great brother in the Lord. He used to remind me and the other coaches, he goes, the players don't care how much you know. The players don't care how much you know, right? You might have heard this before, until they know how much you care. Meaning you could be the most gifted coach, most dynamic, even have all the knowledge in the world, but they're not going to listen because they know you're just using them. That was his point. He goes, make sure you take time to build relationships with your coaches and players. That was his point, and I appreciated that. So in the church, as we serve our gifts, if we want to be effective, if you want power behind it, we can't operate in the flesh. You can't be speaking and singing and demonstrate your charisma in the flesh. That doesn't work. It may catch attention and grab people's notice for a moment, but there's no change. We're just putting on a show. Powerless. So it's very clear. Paul says, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal without love. So the first point. Without love, our serving is powerless. Point number two, why is serving without love essential? Serving without agape love is pointless. Pointless, from powerless to pointless. Let me read verse two here. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, more hyperbole, but do not have love, I am nothing. The Corinthians prided themselves on having wisdom and knowledge. The more you knew, the more you could hang with the upper echelons, the more power you knew. Knowledge equaled power. It equaled status. 
The more you could demonstrate that you knew, the more wisdom that you had, more Sophia that you had, the more status you had with the people in the city, but also, unfortunately, in the church. Corinth was a learning center of the world. Keep in mind, there are only 70, about 70 miles from Athens. We know how famous Athens was with all the philosophers and the learners of the time. All the learning came out of Athens. There's 70 miles away from Athens. This was a big deal. Many schools of learning were located in Corinth. So knowledge equal power and status in, in, in Corinth. All the renowned teachers were there, philosophers, and this is a huge source of status. So when Paul in verse 2 says this, even if I could speak and, and, and prophesy with all mystery and all knowledge, that's, that's hyperbole again. Because who alone has all, who understands all mysteries? The Bible says the secrets belong to God. Who has all knowledge? Who has understanding of all things? That's God alone. Hyperbole. Even if someone could speak like that, like God, and know as much as God, which is only one who knows all that much, without love, I am nothing. Even another hyperbole here, hyperbolic point he uses, uses if I have all faith so as to remove mountains. When's the last time you've seen a mountain move? Right? This is a Jewish saying what Paul was familiar with. Even Jesus uses that saying in Matthew 17, where if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you could tell this mountain to move from there to there. That was basically a saying that said you could remove all obstacles, you could do what seemingly is impossible. And even if someone like this existed with all faith, perfect faith, who of us has perfect faith? Right? We're all under process. So this is another hyperbolic statement. Paul is saying, but my motivation, if it's not with love, but do not have love, I am nothing. So he goes from the effectiveness to now the status of the person. I'm nothing, he says. 1 Samuel 16 talks about man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Proverbs 21.2, or Keith Fukuyama read this to us during our, our board meeting this past Friday. It talks about everything's right in a man's eyes, but God is the one who judges the heart. You know, Matthew 23, 5 talks about the Pharisees, how the Lord says this. They do all their deeds to be noticed by men. Right? They love being called rabbi and having uh, honorific greetings and being able to sit at the right places at the banquets. They love that. They, they thrived on that. No different in Corinth. If you could speak with incredible wisdom and knowledge, you, there's some status. If you could demonstrate you have some kind of extraordinary faith compared to the next guy, you had, they thought they had status. It might have impressed man, but the Lord says this, I'm not impressed. I see right through your motivation. It's more than doing. Outward appearance, man sees. But I, the Lord, look at the heart. Everything that we do, from parenting, from going to school, from supporting our families in the works that we have, to serving at church, God looks at the heart. Man, we begin, wow, you're dynamic. Man, you're efficient. That's awesome. You're the greatest. But God weighs the heart. Right? God weighs the heart. That's a tension for all of us. We had no status before God. 
Everything that we do, whether it's good or bad, the Lord looks at the heart. And, and as Christians, when we do good things, tendencies to feel good about ourselves because it is a virtuous thing to serve, to serve others. But God looks at the heart. So without love, our service does not amount to anything. No merit towards us. No status. So when we teach, like if we prophesy, we speak forth God's word, we teach, we preach, we provide biblical counseling, if it's not to love, it's meaningless. If you have some incredible faith, perhaps you're that person sitting there where I'm going to sell everything I have and move to a different country. That's incredible faith, right? Amen? That's an extra helping of faith this brother or sister has. But if you do it just to impress others, I am nothing, the Bible says. This is challenging, right? Because this is a constant battle for all of us. This is very much a constant battle for all of us. Let's go to the third point here. Why is serving without love essential? Point number three, serving without agape love is profitless. Some powerless, pointless, to now profitless. Let me read verse 3 here. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, feed the poor is kind of added by the interpreters, but if I give all my possessions away, the implication is to help someone who needs, who needs it. And if I surrender my body to be burned, meaning I give up everything. I mean, giving up all your possessions is a significant move there. Amen? But the highest thing that you give up is your own life, your own body. If you give your body up. But do not have love, agape love. It profits me nothing. What is Paul talking about here? When he's talking about surrender my body to be burned. Give all my possessions away. Just from clarification, you know, maybe you perhaps you're thinking in your mind... Is this talking about persecution? Christians were burned at the stake in the early church, later on at the Reformation. Christians had been burned at the stake. But when Paul penned 1 Corinthians, this was about 10 years prior to um, Nero's persecution of Christians, where they were burning Christians. They were burning Christians, hanging them on a pole to light up his garden. They were basically human candles put oil all over these poor Christians. They light them up on fire and use them as human torches to light up his garden. Evil. Emperor Nero. But this is about 10 years prior to that. Perhaps Paul is being prophetic and kind of preparing the people like this type of persecution is coming. Right? We know perhaps some persecution could be coming our way in this nation. Perhaps there's some prophetic warnings that Paul is giving to the Corinthians. Or simply could just mean this is the highest level sacrifice that you give. You give up your life. You will die for somebody. All right, so this is kind of another lower to higher standard that Paul's giving up. Giving up your possessions, that's significant now. But now giving up everything, your life, is the highest that you could do. But do not have love. Your motivation isn't to benefit others, but in an interesting way, is to be regarded by others. Right? And, and it's like, Christian virtue is, is based on generosity. So if you're a generous person, people will respect you. Right? And so it's good to be generous, but a, there's a double-edged sword there. Let me read you Matthew 6 here. This might give some 
better uh, clarity in what Paul is talking about here, Jesus' teaching here. Matthew 6, verse 1. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Right? There he is again, talking about the religious uh, people, those who are spiritually materialistic. Uh, and I'll explain what that means in a second. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. No profit. Jesus says the same thing. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet. Hearie, hearie, this is what I'm doing for everybody. Do in secret. Before you, before you, as you, the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. They're sounding it off, what they're doing. So that they may be honored by men. But look what the Lord says. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full already. If that's the reward that you want, if you want to be admired by people, you got it. But that's it. It's all going to burn up someday. Verse 3. But when you give to the poor... Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Brothers and sisters, we've talked about this before. The more public the ministry that you have, the more public of, a, of generosity that you have, the greater the temptation to touch the glory. The greater the temptation to be looking, wanting to be admired by other people. There's greater temptation. That's why all of us are prone to this, me included. That's why if you're able to do things privately, secretly, that guards your heart from that temptation. It's called spiritual materialism. And people that I've been witnessing to, non-believers, goes, ah, spiritual materialism. That's just all to look good. This is all just to say you did this to make yourself feel better. Okay, they're not wrong if that's the motive. That's wrong, correct. But they, even non-believers have identified this as an issue, spiritual materialism. And see, it profits me nothing. It profits me nothing. And I want to I take time to read this from Corinthians 3. If you got your Bible, go to Corinthians 3 here. This is important. This is important because you could do outstanding ministry, outstanding work. Good work. And Paul already detailed this earlier, but I think it's important for us to revisit 1 Corinthians 3 here. Verse 11. Okay? For no one can lay a foundation other than, other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. You only could build on Christ, right? Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw... Verse 13, this is the quality of your work. We want to be like gold, silver, and precious stone. We want to be using those type of materials. Wood, hay, straw is not the type of material that we want to be using. Okay, This is the type of work, the quality of work, but also the quality of our motivation is tied into the type of material that we will use. Verse 13, each man's work will become evident. How? For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. Fire. God will reveal the type of work that we did. You judge the motivation of our hearts. It could look great. Wow, that's awesome. Fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Your faithfulness, but also your motivation to be faithful. If any man's work which he has built on, on it remains, he will receive a reward, profit. You're, you're faithful and also your motives are pure. 
It was was to love on me and to love on the church. Reward. Understand this, brothers and sisters. We talk a lot about how salvation is free. By grace, salvation is a gift. Amen. And amen and amen. But the rewards that we receive is completely earned. Our faithfulness will be judged also not in our results, in our work, but also our hearts. God's looking at that. Verse 15, if any man's work is burned up, so this is all of us, some of our works will be burned up, will smell like, like, like fire or like smoke when we get up to heaven to some levels, right? All of us. He will suffer loss. Poof. But he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. Meaning you will still receive salvation, but those rewards that we thought we were having, not going to be there. And everyone's going to know it too. Right? The whole church, I believe the whole church, obviously God will be there, will know, oh, we thought you did that for us. That's a day of reckoning now. That's called the Bema Seat Judgment of the Lord. It's not to judge your salvation, but the type of rewards that we get. Now, that's basically it. Those three verses is what I really want to teach on out of 1 Corinthians 13. I don't think it's complicated. I think it's fairly clear. However, What's not clear is this, what's doing in our heart. I mean, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to sit under these verses all week long. And this was honestly one of the most humbling passages to study. Humbled me. Humbled me as a why, pastor. Because I asked myself, do I love like this? Everything that I do, is it out of pure motives? I even asked myself this, do I even love... Like this, those I love the most? And the answer is, sometimes, right? Certainly not all of the time, all right? I'm just curious how this hits you. And I get it, maybe perhaps this is just, this might be the first time you're reading these three verses in a long time. But as I exposit the text, how does this hit you? You should be thinking to yourself perhaps, yeah, do I do these, these things out of love? As a mom, do I do this out of my love for God and for my children? As a serving in the church, am I doing this for love and for the love of the body? Other things, right? What comes to mind right now? Man, pastor, that's convicting. This is impossible. Perhaps this is impossible what God is saying to do. And you're right. <laughs> it is impossible. And it is convicting. But it's good to be challenged. The word is so good. I believe the word is to comfort the afflicted, as I read someplace at one time, and afflict the comfortable. Right? The word is supposed to do that. It's supposed to afflict the comfortable, like get us, oh, wake us up a little bit. But also it's meant to comfort the afflicted. So if you're afflicted today, I was afflicted all week long. I figured to myself, you know what? I can't just leave the church in this state and just, all right, God bless you guys. See you next week. We need to be comforted too. I needed to be comforted. So as a heart of a pastor, as a preacher, as you're conflicted, I'm like, man, I need some comfort here. I need to reconcile this for myself. How do I love like this? Right? You should be thinking that. I know I don't love like this. How do I, therefore, how do I love this way? I'm going to give you an illustration. It's going to be a longer illustration. We got time here. (laughs) Imagine with me for a moment here, okay? All of us, we all, we're all in this situation. We have at least, at least 20 distinguished guests coming to visit our home, 
20. And it's your job now to make sure your house is clean. All the toys are picked up. The garden looks decent. You got all the weeds, you know, all that stuff. Bathrooms are cleaned up. Kitchen is clean. The dining room's clean. The cushions are put up on the couch where they need to be, where they're usually on the ground, often for us. And I'm part of the problem with that too, quite honestly, guys. But anyway, so we got to get all that done. And then now you got to think about the food. 20 people. I got to get the groceries done. I have to make sure I'm going to serve hors d'oeuvres or some kind of appetizer. What's the main course going to be? Some dessert would be nice since these are 20 distinguished guests. So it's very important that we get everything right. I mean, is it not? I get that. And if, if, if serving is your love language, you get it even more. You feel like, right now you're, you, you might be clenching your jaw thinking about the thought of this, right? It can get hectic. So as I was, as I was looking for comfort myself on how to love like this, my mind was drawn to Martha. 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 Sister of Mary, sister of Lazarus. So turn with me to Luke 10 here. We're going to journey through the mind and heart of Martha a little bit to find some comfort here. Perhaps this will encourage you as it encouraged me. Luke 10, Luke chapter 10 will be it. Luke is one of the gospels of Jesus Christ, the story of Jesus Christ while he was walking the earth. Luke 10, 38 and 42. So on on his journeys, Jesus enters into Martha's home. Let me read verse 38. Luke 10, 38. Now as they, that's Jesus in the 12, minimally, if not other people who were part of his entourage, he had other sisters with him as well. They were traveling along. He entered a village, the village of Bethany, which is just outside of Jerusalem. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Praise God for Martha's hospitality. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word. So, she had a sister, Mary, who was sitting at the Lord's feet, just hanging out with Jesus Christ, the distinguished guest of honor. Verse 40, but Martha was distracted with all her preparation. This word distracted, brothers and sisters, carries the meaning of pulled in every direction. I got so many things going on. I got 10,000 things in my mind. Martha had so much. I mean, we could all understand with what we just talked about earlier, how to prepare a, a great meal or great experience for 20 guests, if not more. And she came up to him. Who's him? That's Jesus, the distinguished, the most distinguished guest in the home, right? And said, Lord, where does she go now? Mary, Martha, flustered and frustrated at this point. No more joy, stressed out. I've been there before. Do you not care? that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone. Then tell her to help me. Hospitality is out the door now. (laughs) The one guest that you're trying to bless and honor, Martha comes to him and starts questioning his character. Don't you care? What? You got to question Jesus' character? Don't you care? And then not only that, Martha goes on to command the Lord... Lord, do this. (laughs) How does that work, right? Lord, do this. Commands her what to do. 
the Lord must have just looked at her, just incredible love, perfect love, because he is love. And this is his response. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, anytime kids, just like your parents, when they mention your name twice, like, listen up, right? So the Lord says, Martha, Martha, listen up. Don't miss what I'm about to tell you. You are worried and bothered about so many things. Verse 42, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. I think we could be hard on Mary, uh, Martha. Amen? We've been hard on her. Mary, Mary, we like to exalt and lift up. She had the right mind. She was devoted to Christ. But I identify oftentimes with Martha. I like to get things done. I get that feeling. I get that uncomfortableness. And uh, I am cooking for the family. I could even, just for my own family, I could get like that. I get a little tense in the kitchen room. I become like a czar in the kitchen. Like, no, no one come in here. It's a true story. <laughs> So we could be hard on Martha, but Martha is the one who invited the Lord in. That's honorable. Martha's the one that's trying to bless the disciples and Jesus. That's honorable. She's the one that initiated this. But what happened? The Lord says that she was missing one thing. And what was that one thing? Let's turn to John 12 here. Martha, uh, Martha reappears in John 11 and John 12. The Lord was not finished with Martha. The Lord loves Martha. Come on, I know you love me. Come on, I know it's a little hectic. I imagine the Lord was very gracious to Martha. However, direct enough for her to understand what he was saying. Let's go to John 12. Same scenario this time. Jesus and the disciples. Maybe it's a different home. Some, some scholars think maybe a different home. Lazarus is there, and so is Mary. And Martha's there. Let me just read the first three verses. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, that's their hometown, right outside Jerusalem, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Significant moment, chapter 11. Massive, game-changing moment. Verse 2. So they made a supper there. For They made a supper. They made him a supper there. And what was Martha doing? And Martha was serving. Same thing. Same thing. But Lazarus was the one of those reclining at the table with him. Lazarus is enjoying the Lord. Martha still serving. Verse 3. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume. This is Mary again, sitting at the feet of Jesus. A pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Same people. Lazarus is there. Mary's still there, sitting at the feet of Jesus. Same posture. And then Martha's doing the same exact thing. But there's something different. Same scenario, but different heart this time. Martha was at peace. She was utilizing her spiritual gift of hospitality now. She had joy. There was no complaining. She was not, she was not telling the Lord what to do. She wasn't questioning the Lord's character this time. And the Lord didn't rebuke her this time. The Lord just sitting there enjoying the company enjoying Lazarus, enjoying being anointed by Mary. This is the story of two Marthas, isn't it? Luke, t Luke 10, Martha, 
What was the difference between the John 12 Martha? It's the same person now. It's not like just a name, uh, someone had the same name. Same brother, same sister. Luke 10 now, Martha, she served. What was the motivation for her serving? That's the essence, the heart of it, right? This is what we're talking about. Yes, Martha loved the Lord. But in that moment, things got hectic enough. The Lord orchestrated it to get hectic enough for to reveal where Martha was at. We understand that trials reveal where we're at. If it was all smooth sailing, we could mask what things are going on underneath the hood there, in their heart. How I like to say it is Martha was serving for her identity. Martha wanted to be saying, hey, that was a great meal. Martha, you, did, you provide an incredible household. Martha, you're the best. Martha, I like you. Martha, you're in with me. Perhaps Martha was serving for her identity, meaning working out her identity, earning her identity. I am worthy, Lord Jesus. I could do all this for you. I am worthy to be loved. To be loved. But the Lord said one thing was missing. John 12, Martha started to realize more how much she was beloved by the Lord. John 12, Martha was now no longer serving for her identity. Now she's serving out of her identity as a beloved one of Christ. I'm already in with Christ. I want to do this because I'm loved by him. I love him. I love my brother who's just been, who's dead for four days and I've been raised from the dead. I love my sister. I love to do this. This gives me life now. So she's serving out of her identity rather than working for her identity. Can you relate? Can you understand? This is how the world treats us. If you do good, we like you. That's the life of a coach. You're only as good as your last game, right? You win, they love you. You lose, they don't like you. They get rid of you. That's just how it works, right? That's the world. That's the world, and Martha needed a brain transplant or heart transplant to understand Jesus had a different economy. Jesus ran life much more differently. So what was the one thing? This is devotion to Christ, sitting under his word, believing the love that he has for us. And how did Martha realize this more? Let's go to John 11. Let's just back up a few verses from John 12. Let's go to John chapter 11. Martha's brother, who she loved dearly, was dead for four days. And then when the Lord finally appears, Martha said, where are Mary and Martha said, where were you, Lord? If you were here, he would have, he'd still be alive. Incredible faith. John eleven thirty five, 35, the shortest verse in the Bible, right? Jesus wept. They kept that verse because that's significant. Jesus is weeping because he, he felt the pain for this family. Even the Jews around him said in verse 36 of John 11, see how he loved him. It was obvious, wow, Jesus actually loves this family. And then in verse 43, 44, Lazarus, he raises from the dead, and he comes storming out of the cave, wrapped up. Martha realized, Jesus is here for me. Jesus has always been here for me. He's always been here for me. 
And when you experience agape love like this, you're changed by it. This is what happened to, to Martha. How could you not serve with joy after your brother has been resurrected from the grave? How much compassion he has for your family? Okay, I don't care if I have to do it all alone. There's this difference now. He was able to experience Jesus' love for her. 1 John 4.19 says this, We love because he first loved us. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says this, For the love of Christ controls us. Romans 5.8 says this, God demonstrates his love towards us while we're enemies. Christ died for us. That is love. That's agape love. This is incredible. And guess what? The Lord was taking her deeper now. Not only is she serving out of her, out of her identity, because, man, the Lord really loves me. The Lord really loves me. Even when I talk to him harshly, he really loves me. He's still there for me. Let's go into John 12 here. I want to tell, show you how the Lord is going to take her deeper, deeper, deeper into his love. That's what we need to go. We need to get on that train where we go deeper, deeper, deeper into the love of Christ. John 12, 4. After Mary's perfume is, 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 uh, is uh, emitted throughout the whole home, but Judas Iscariot jumps into the scene. One of his disciples, who was the false disciple, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? What an act, right? Verse 6, Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief, and as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. I mean, he used to take, he used to skim from it. Verse 7. This is where the Lord takes her deeper. Therefore, Jesus said, and Martha's listening to all this now. Let her alone. Jesus defends Mary. Let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. You understand that? See, the context of this dinner party is very significant. Significant. This is Jesus' last meal with friends before he enters into Jerusalem for the last time. The very next day, he's humbly going to be riding on a donkey in his triumphant entry to ultimately be killed on the cross. So the Lord is telling everyone in that house, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. She's preparing me for my death. Jesus was telling everybody. This is the final meal. And then Martha would see love in action. She's going deeper now. Remember, agape love is a sacrificial love of the will. Agape love is a sacrificial love of the will. Martha saw her Christ willingly Get on a donkey and ride into Jerusalem. Martha saw her Christ willingly be betrayed by his closest friends. Martha saw her Christ willingly be falsely accused, willingly be arrested and illegally tried, willingly be mocked and spit on, willingly allow himself to be beaten, tortured, and ultimately willingly be killed, a humiliating death on a cross. Martha saw this like, whoa, this is deeper. This is much deeper than what I once bargained for. In the words that the Lord told Martha in John 11, 
I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. That made sense all of a sudden. Jesus died and three days later rose from the grave. What kind of love is this? What kind of love is this? And so this really helped me. I realized we're all Marthas to some level. As we minister our gifts, we're all Marthas at times. Good and bad. And we're all learning more about Christ's love for us. So our identity is that we're beloved ones of Christ. This is what defines us. This is why we're able to love this way. Because this is our identity. This is the flag that we wave, that we're beloved ones of Christ. Think about it, brothers and sisters, how he sustained us throughout this year. It was hard. Perhaps the Lord is revealing things in our own hearts, just like how you revealed to Martha. It's been hard. But look how he sustained us through it all. But on a deeper level, look how he is showing to us again that he is the resurrection and the life. What else matters? Nothing else matters. Our identity is this. We could love the way that He's calling us to love because he loved us first this way. And the more we understand this, the more deeper we get into this love, the more overflow of this will happen out of our lives. It isn't like, okay, I'm going to love this way. This doesn't work that way. It's a transformation. We love because he first loved us, the Bible says. So in this final song here, let's sing and preach to one another. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within us. Let's sing and preach to one another in song about the Savior's great love for us. This first song that we sing before we finish is this. It's called My Savior's Love. Let me read the first verse. As we will all stand in that day. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. Are you amazed about this person from Nazareth. And wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Let's sing this, let's meditate on these truths, but let's preach this to one another. Remember, some of us right now are hurting. Some of us are in a place of joy. Some of us are in need of a place of comfort. As you sing this song, think about the brotherhood. Think about the sisterhood. Let the love of Christ minister through you through song. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time to really focus in on your love. Thank you for, for allowing us to go slowly through 1 Corinthians 13 on agape love. Lord, you say that you give us a new commandment to love one another. And by, all, by this, all men will know that we're your disciples by how we love one another. Lord, this is an impossible task on our own. So forgive us, Lord, for we have all fallen short, me included. We've all fallen short of loving this way, loving you and loving others. We've all been, Martha, in those low moments. Thank you for your amazing love for us, Lord. Thank you how you willingly chose to die for us. Thank you for how marvelous, how wonderful your love is for us. 
Lord, please continue to take us deeper into your love. Show us how much you love us. Help us to realize we're so loved by you. Lord, I pray your spirit will ignite in our hearts so that we will be able to sing worship to you, Lord, and we will be able to preach to one another right now. So, Father God, I praise you. We thank you for this time to preach your word. Lord, I thank you. Lord, thank you that you say that greater love has no one no one than this, that one may lay down his life for his friends. Thank you for laying down your life for us. Thank you, Lord. We love you. Help us to love like you. In Jesus' name, amen.